Also, Mike mentioned, or Alvin mentioned this um, a few minutes ago. I just want to say this again. We have some people here from the former Adventist Fellowship Conference that took place here this weekend. If you were um, at all attending the conference this weekend, could you stand just so we could welcome you? Amen. Let's welcome them. Yeah, this was a wonderful and strategic event, and we're just ecstatic as a church to be able to host uh, this wonderful conference this year and hope that uh, we, can, we can do it again in the years to come. Well, let me uh, uh, invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Genesis 12. Uh, Genesis chapter uh, 12, we're doing a verse-by-verse study uh, through the book of Genesis. And as we continue in our study this morning, we come to Genesis chapter 12, verse 10. And my goal this morning is to cover uh, verses 10 through 20. And if you want to give a title to the message this morning, it would be God Saves a Marriage. God Saves a a Marriage. And what an appropriate day. Valentine's Day. Um, Valentine's Day is actually a special day uh, for me uh, for a couple reasons. The first is that on Valentine's Day back in 1979, I was a freshman in... Did someone whistle? Um, in 1979, I was a freshman in high school, and I gave Donna a Valentine's card. Donna's my wife. And um, I, uh, again, was a freshman in high school. I had never even ever had a conversation with her before, uh, but she was the prettiest girl I had ever seen in my life. And so I bought her a Valentine's card, and I summoned up the nerve to walk up to her and give it to her uh, after a Wednesday evening uh, church service. And she kept the card, and it's right here. So, and, and in the card uh, were, were these words to one of my all-time favorites. <laughs> and in cursive, I wrote after that, oh, yeah. And <clears throat> I had never even had a conversation with her, but she was already one of my all-time uh, favorites in my, in my life. Well, our relationship didn't really take off after that. In fact, another two years went by, and there was no conversation between us at all. But I adored her from afar. And uh, then our junior year of high school, our youth group had a Sadie Hawkins Valentine's Day uh, banquet where the girl was supposed to ask the guy. And wouldn't you know it, Donna came walking up to me at our church and asked me to be her date. Uh, I could not believe my good fortune. Um, I happily told her yes, and Valentine's Day 1981, 35 years ago, was our very first date. During that uh, banquet, there were red construction paper hearts that were on Uh, the tables, and I took one of them during the banquet, and I wrote her a note, and I gave the heart, folded up the heart, and gave it to her, and she kept that too, and this is it right here, so, Um, 
And it was only, what I wrote to her was only about four sentences long. And the most revealing sentence that I wrote to her in this heart was this. I'll share it with you. You are a really nice girl, and I really like you a whole gob. (laughs) True story. Um, And you know, our relationship took off after that. And I think it was my eloquence uh, that won her. So take notes, guys. But speaking of Valentine's Day uh, cards, ladies, I want you, as we start this morning, to imagine getting a Valentine's Day card from your husband, and you open it up, and you see these words. He says, I know that you are a beautiful woman. Would that be sweet? Yeah, it'd be really sweet we actually see Abram speaking these exact words to his wife in our passage uh, today. Uh, But imagine that you continue reading and the card goes on to say, you are so beautiful that when other men see you, they will want to kill me just so they can have you. (laughs) What would you think? Sounds a little paranoid, but it's still kind of sweet, right? (laughs) Well, in our passage today, Abram essentially says this to his wife. But then imagine you continue reading the card and your husband goes on to say, therefore, please tell people that you are my sister. That way, when they try to take you away from me, they won't kill me. But instead, they will treat me well because they think I'm your brother. Suddenly, that's not so sweet, is it? But that's exactly what Abram says to his wife, Sarah, in our passage today. Happy Valentine's Day, Sarah. In truth, what happens in our passage today is a sad story about a man who makes a decision that is profoundly detrimental to his marriage and endangering to his wife. Abram makes a horrible decision that apart from divine intervention would have ended his marriage to Sarah and resulted in his wife being violated by another man. But we see in our passage today how God intervenes and rescues Sarah. And in the process, he saves Abram and Sarah's marriage. And God does the same for us as any of us that have been married for any length of time can testify Two, most of us who are married would say that we have often made poor decisions that are detrimental to the health of our own marriages. Over the years, I myself have done many things that were hurtful to Donna and not conducive to the health of our marriage. But God has graciously intervened and he has rescued our marriage again and again, sometimes rescuing our marriage from me and my own devices. And the fact that Donna and I are still married, uh, that our marriage still stands today after these 28 years, and that we love each other more today 
than we ever have is a wonderful monument to God's grace and the result of many, many moments of divine intervention, gracious intervention. I would love to be the hero of my marriage to Donna, but I'm not. And I'm okay with that. The hero of my marriage, the one who has saved my marriage to Donna countless times and whose grace has made all the difference is Jehovah God. And in our passage today, Jehovah God saves Abram and Sarah's marriage and gets them back to the place where he wants them to be. Our story today begins with Abram and Sarah in the land of Canaan, uh, which is where we left them last week. Uh, This is the place that God has called them to. At the beginning of Genesis 12, God uh, called Abram to leave Haran. He made promises to Abram that he would bless him and protect him and make of him a great and a mighty nation and that through Abram, God would bless all the peoples of the world through him. And so Abram and Sarah and those that they take with them leave Haran and they come into Canaan and upon arriving, they literally travel through the land of promise. And at one point of their travels, God appears to Abram and told him that this was the land that would be his home. This was the land that he would give to his descendants. And so we saw last Sunday how Abram and Sarah and those that were with them traveled through the full length of this land of promise, and they end up settling somewhere in the southern region called the Negev. Some time goes by, and this is where the events of our passage pick up today. Let me read the account to you beginning in verse 10. The passage says, now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there for the famine was severe in the land. And it came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarah, his wife, see now, I know that you are a beautiful woman. And when the Egyptians see you, They will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say that you are my sister so that it may go well with me because of you and that I may live on account of you. And it came about when Abram came into Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Therefore, he treated Abram well for her sake and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. Then Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted him away with his wife and all that belonged to him. This is the word of God, and may God help us to understand his word this morning. The way we're going to break this passage down is we're going to observe seven developments in this story of how God saves Abram and Sarah's marriage 
and returns them, gets them back to the land of promise. And hopefully we'll see ourselves, especially see our God in this story, how gracious and loving and how faithful he is. The first development that we observe here is that Abram leaves Canaan for Egypt due to famine in the land. He leaves Canaan, the land of promise, for Egypt due to famine in the land. Um, In verse 10, it says, Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. We're told at the beginning of verse 10 that there was a famine in the land, but then at the end of the verse, we're told that the famine was severe in the land. This means that the seasonal rains were not falling and the land was under drought conditions. Crops were not growing and there was little grass for Abram to be able to uh, feed his livestock. This teaches us, uh, guys, sometimes even in our own lives, that there is famine in the place where God actually wants us. Clearly, God is testing Abram's faith and wanting to grow Abram and teach Abram to depend upon him to provide for him. Nonetheless, twice we're told here that Abram went down to Egypt because of the famine. That's the reason, and it's stated twice. Look at this. There was a famine in the land, so, you can underline the word so, Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there for, you can underline the word for, the famine was severe in the land. Clearly, uh, Abram is... In his thinking, he's leaving the land of promise, going to Egypt because of the famine. Evidently, Egypt was not experiencing famine conditions. Egypt was not dependent upon seasonal rains like the land of Canaan, at least in the region of the Negev. was. Uh, Egypt's agriculture was dependent upon the Nile River, so it often served as a place that people would flock to during times of famine, And we see this actually happening later in Genesis as well. So the text tells us that Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. In other words, to sojourn means that he went down there intending to live there temporarily with every intention of coming back one day. Notice, guys, that in the passage, the text nowhere tells us that God told Abram to leave the land of promise to go down to Egypt. Earlier in Abram's life, God had told Abram to get out of Ur of the Chaldees and to come to the land that he would show him. And then later in Abram's life, at the beginning of chapter 12, God called Abram to get out of Haran and come to the land that he would show him. And now Abram is in that land that God had provided uh, for him. But nothing in this story is said about God speaking to Abram and telling Abram to get out of Canaan and to go down to Egypt. So it's likely, I don't want to overly judge Abram here, but it's likely that Abram is making this decision of his own accord rather than consulting with God. As one writer says, and I quote, Abram's going down to Egypt was not so much an intentional uh, sin 
as much as it was a reflexive turn to his own devices. He did not deny God. He simply forgot him and forgot how great God is. And there's probably truth to that assessment by this writer. Whether or not Abram's going down to Egypt was a good and appropriate thing or not, we do know that subsequent events will show that Abram clearly is not in a mode where he's factoring God into his thinking at all and trusting God. This brings us to the next development in this story. Um, As Abram and Sarah are approaching Egypt, Abram gets to worrying about something. And so he talks to his wife and makes an urgent request of her. And the second development we see emerging from that is that Abram pleads with Sarah to conceal their marriage. Abram pleads with Sarah to conceal their marriage. Look what the text says in verse 11. It came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarah, his wife, see now, I know that you are a beautiful woman. Literally, the text is behold, please exclamation point. Abram is pleading with Sarah to recognize something about herself. And that is that she is a beautiful woman. And Abram is insisting that she recognize her own beauty and the problem that it will pose for them as they come into Egypt. What's the problem? In verse 12, he says to Sarah, when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. They're going to look at me and say, this is his wife and they will kill me, but they will let you live. We'll see in a moment that Abram is exactly right in some of these expectations, which means that Sarah was indeed a physically beautiful woman, a woman who easily caught the eye of other men. It's one thing for a woman to be so beautiful that guys want to kill her husband to get her. What makes this all the more remarkable is that Abram is 75 years old right now. And we know from later in Genesis that Sarah was 10 years younger than him. So she is a 65 year old woman right now. Yet she is still beautiful, so beautiful that Abram has to worry about men wanting to steal her away from him. While this may seem odd to us, keep in mind that life expectancy was longer in Abram's day than it is in our day. Abram is going to live to the age of 175. Sarah will live to the age of 127 which means that at the age of 65, Sarah was about the equivalent of a woman who is maybe 35 to 38 years old today. So she's a beautiful woman at this stage of her life. And Abram is gravely concerned about men wanting to steal her away from him and kill him in the process. He doesn't seem concerned about the opposite happening. He doesn't say to his wife, honey, uh, behold, please, I am a beautiful man. (laughs) And I am concerned as we come into Egypt that women might see me and kill you in order to have me. He's not worried about that, but he is worried about people wanting to kill him so that they can take Sarah to be their wife. Observe his fear. 
He expresses his prediction to Sarah. When the Egyptians see you, they will say this is his wife and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Abram is right to expect that the Egyptians will notice her and think she's beautiful. And he's even right in predicting that they will, that some men will want her as their own wife, but he is wrong to make the prediction as if it's fact that they will kill him. Nowhere in Abram's prediction is Jehovah God mentioned anywhere, nor are the promises of God that God had made to him mentioned. What Abram could have said is, Sarah, because of your beauty, there are Egyptians that may want to kill me to take you to be their wife, but God, who made promises to us, will look after us. He has promised to bless me and make of me a great nation, and that through me all the peoples of the earth will be blessed based on these promises and the greatness of Jehovah God who made these promises. I know that no Egyptian, even if he wanted to kill me, will succeed in doing that. But Abram doesn't talk this way. Instead, he leads his wife in a way that does not factor God into the picture at all. He speaks here as if there is no God. This is actually, guys, the essence of unbiblical worry, brooding over a situation, making predictions of the future as if there were no God who has made promises to us and who is lovingly involved in every detail of our lives. Worry, essentially, is when we brood over a situation, taking everything into account but God. And that's what Abram is doing. And it infects his leadership of Sarah. Look how he leads Sarah. In verse 13, he says, please say that you are my sister. Now notice his language. So that it may go well with me because of you and that I may live on account of you. Notice his wording. He wants Sarah to say that she is his sister, A, so that it might go well with him and be so that he might live. There are two goals that are stated here. Abram wants to avoid getting killed and he wants the situation to turn out in a profitable way to his advantage for things to go well. Let's say it this way. Abram wants to be known as Sarah's brother rather than her husband, so that he doesn't get killed. He also wants to be known as Sarah's brother, rather than as someone unrelated to Sarah, because there are advantages that will accrue to him by virtue of him being known as her brother. His life will be saved, and he can actually profit from the situation if people think that he is her brother. To understand this, realize that back in this day, uh, we actually see this demonstrated in Scripture, but uh, one Jewish commentator says it this way, uh, the custom was that where there is no father, the brother assumes responsibilities in arranging marriages on the sister's behalf. Therefore, whoever would have wished from Egypt to take Sarah as a wife would have to negotiate with her brother, and that would be Abram. According to this deception, in the meantime, Abram could profit off the situation in as much, according to the Jewish Hamash, 
which represents ancient tradition, the nobles of Egypt would shower him with gifts to win his sister's hand in marriage. As Bruce Waltke says, Abram's goal was not to sell Sarah's honor to save his own skin, but to deceitfully stall for time to exploit suitors without ever actually giving her away. This is actually what Jacob's sons do later in Genesis, in Genesis 34, when they arrange for the marriage of their sister, Dinah, to Shechem. They get Shechem to make some commitments when their intention never was to actually ever give Dinah to him in marriage. This is what Abram was hoping to do. I firmly believe he never intended to actually give Sarah away. He just wanted to be able, they needed to be there to feed their livestock and to benefit from the fact that things are more fertile there and they can get food and so forth and survive for several months or what have you. And he wanted to be able to buy some time to exploit the situation if someone was interested in Sarah and then for him and Sarah to get out of Dodge before he actually ever had to give her away. So Abram is asking Sarah to tell people that she was his sister instead of his wife. We know from later in Genesis that Sarah was in fact Abram's half sister, but this is still deception because it is intended to conceal the truth that they were married. Is that making sense? Uh, so that's the strategy. Uh, but how does that work out for Abram? Uh, this brings us to the next development in the story of God saving Abram and Sarah's marriage and getting them back to the land of promise. And that is that Sarah gets taken into Pharaoh's house. Um, Abram is a smart man. What he feared and predicted actually came to pass. On some levels, observe what happens. Verse 14, it came about when Abram came into Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh. Abram had told his wife, you're beautiful. They see that she's very beautiful. Eventually, Pharaoh's officials see her and they report to Pharaoh and the text says they praise her to Pharaoh. The word praise here is the Hebrew word halal, which is often used in the Psalms to speak of praising God. The word means to boast about or to rave about. It turns out that when Abram enters Egypt with his wife, Sarah stole the show and is quite the sensation in the land of Egypt. Reminded me of a documentary that I saw a few years ago back in 19. Uh, 61, May of 1961, President John F. Kennedy visited France with his wife, Jacqueline Kennedy, and uh, she wowed the people of France with her charm and her beauty and with her understanding uh, of all things French. She could even speak French, and Time Magazine reported on the trip, um, and much of their coverage was actually focused on her rather than the president. And in the article that they wrote in Time Magazine, where they covered the trip, they're talking all about her. And then they make the statement, there was also a fellow who came with her, <laughs> speaking of the president. And while in France, uh, John F. Kennedy observed the sensation that she was and how all eyes turned to her 
when they walked into a room rather than himself. And so on one occasion, he began one of his speeches by saying these words. He says, I do not think it altogether inappropriate for me to introduce myself. I am the man who accompanied Jacqueline Kennedy to Paris. But that's, you know, that's kind of how Abram is probably feeling right now as he comes into Egypt with his wife. She is all the rage being raved about even in the halls of power to the Pharaoh himself. What happens next is breathtaking in its swiftness. All we're told next is that the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. What is not stated is that Pharaoh's officials would have come to take Sarah and they would have asked Abram what his relationship to her was. And Abram himself would have told them that Sarah was his sister and Sarah would have either concurred or just remained silent. We know that Abram was the one who told the lie and told them that she was his sister because Pharaoh rebukes him later in the story and not Sarah for telling the lie. Once Abram told Pharaoh that Sarah was his sister, Abram no doubt fully expected to have opportunity to negotiate and stall and maybe take a few weeks to talk about a wedding date that maybe is a year down the road and have a nice profitable situation during that intervening time period. But things don't go how he expected. Very abruptly, the text says the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. According to the language of the text, Sarah isn't given. She's taken away from Abram and brought into Pharaoh's house. I can just imagine how Abram has to be reeling at this point. He had hugely miscalculated. When he came into Egypt, he never dreamed that the man who would want Sarah was the Pharaoh himself, who happened to be the only person in the country who didn't need to negotiate an arrangement with Sarah's brother. As one writer says, it never dawned on Abram that Sarah might be desired by the one who could take her without her brother's consent. And that's exactly what happens. Pharaoh wants her. He takes her immediately, leaving a devastated Abram and Sarah to deal with the circumstances as they stand now. Observe what happens next. The fourth development in this story of how God saves Abram and Sarah's marriage and gets them back to where they need to be. And that is that Pharaoh treats Abram well because of Sarah. He treats Abram well because of Sarah. It says, therefore, he treated Abram well for her sake. In Pharaoh's mind, Abram is now his new brother-in-law. So he lavishes gifts on Abram. The text says, you might want to underline these words, that he treated Abram well. The word treated and well. For Sarah's sake, the verb treat well is the exact same verb used by Abram in verse 13 when he told Sarah that, hey, if you follow this strategy, things will go well for me. Well, they are. In an awful sort of way. The thing is, Abram was hoping that things would go well for him before having to give her away, not after she is taken away from him. Verse 16 tells us, that Pharaoh treated Abram well and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. 
This was the currency of the day. It's another way of saying that he lavished wealth on Abram, lavishing him with money and BMWs and Ferraris of the day. But how hollow it all must have seemed to Abram. One writer on this passage sarcastically says, this is quite an exchange. Abram relinquishes his wife and gains animals and servants. He has his wife taken away from him and he gets these gifts in return for a gift he did not really want to give to the Pharaoh. There's something else that we should take note of here. Notice that Pharaoh is giving Abram male and female uh, servants. Uh, Almost certainly among the female servants is a certain Egyptian woman named Hagar. In Genesis 16.1, we see that Hagar was an Egyptian maidservant to Sarah, and it is her that Sarah will bring to Abram so that he can have sexual relations with her in order to help God fulfill his promises of offspring. Hagar will give birth to Ishmael. And many, many problems are brought into Abram's household and in subsequent history as a result. So while it seems that Abram is profiting materially from this situation, and while in the end God intervenes and everything works out and Abram gets to keep all these gifts, the seeds of future difficulties are embedded in this gain that Abram is obtaining because of his deception. Something else happens as a result of Abram's strategy which is just as unfortunate that leads us to the fifth development. And that is that Jehovah plagues Pharaoh and his house because of Sarah. Jehovah plagues Pharaoh and his house because of Sarah says, but the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. Finally, Jehovah's name actually shows up in the narrative. His presence was not acknowledged by Abram, nor was it factored in by Abram, but Jehovah shows up anyway. And the text tells us that he is striking Pharaoh's house with great plagues. How sad. There's no such thing as an ordinary plague, but as far as plagues go, there are plagues and then there are great plagues. And that's what God is doing here in striking Pharaoh and his house with great Plagues, and not just one plague, but with several plagues that are now overwhelming Pharaoh and his house. We don't know what these plagues were based on the way that this word gets used in the Old Testament. These plagues likely involve various kinds of skin conditions like leprosy or boils. Whatever these plagues were, they are quite literally God's protection on Sarah. As long as Pharaoh himself and his house are afflicted and overwhelmed by these plagues, Pharaoh will not be engaging in sexual relations with Sarah. This is a wonderful mercy from the Lord in protecting Sarah. Why did Jehovah strike Pharaoh's house with great plagues? Look at this. The text says because of Sarah, Abram's wife. God loves Sarah and he's looking out for her. 
It's sad that Abram's deceit is bringing these plagues upon Pharaoh's house in Genesis 12, 2 and 3. I mean, God promised Abram saying, I will bless you. I will make of you a great nation. And in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Yet here is Pharaoh and he's a part of the nations of the world that are supposed to be blessed by Abram. And yet here is Pharaoh in his house experiencing plagues as a result of Abram's deception. As one writer says, here was Abram's first contact with a world power and a great ruler. But instead of being a blessing, he was a curse. We need to learn from this, guys. God has saved us and blessed us so that we would be a blessing to other people. Yet, if we make sinful choices, we too can bring hardship and hurt and ruin to people's lives when we don't follow God's ways. Observe what happens next. Apparently, the plagues that are afflicting Pharaoh's house are so severe, so sudden, so perfectly timed with Sarah being taken into his house that they are able to figure out eventually that these plagues have something to do with Sarah. Some investigation into the matter takes place, and Pharaoh uncovers the fact that Sarah was indeed Abram's wife. And Pharaoh now realizes his mistake that he has unwittingly taken a married woman into his harem. Pharaoh is mortified by what he discovers. He calls for a meeting with Abram. And this brings us to the next development in the story of how God saves Abram and Sarah's marriage and gets them back to the place where they belong. And that is that Pharaoh rebukes Abram for his deception about Sarah. Between Abram and Pharaoh, you'll see by the end of the story, Pharaoh comes off as the more righteous of the two, the more noble of the two. It says, then Pharaoh called Abram and said, and listen to his questions. He asked three questions. The first question is, what is this you have done to me? He takes what Abram has done very personally. Pharaoh must have been a pathetic sight at this point, afflicted with plagues on his body as he stands before Abram asking, what is this you have done to me? He asked, probably while pointing to his plagued body. Pharaoh's second question is, why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Implied in Pharaoh's question is that if Abram had told him, yes, I'm her husband, she is my wife, then Pharaoh would have left her alone and not taken her to be his wife into his house. It turns out that Abram's fears were not well-founded after all. He would have been better off telling the truth from the outset. Has that ever happened to you? Like, you do the wrong thing because you got all these worries and fears and then you find out later after a whole lot of mess and consequence and hurt to yourself and other people that, man, if you would have just done the right thing at the start, things would have been so much better and your fears that led you into sin were not well-founded after all. Pharaoh's third question is, why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Pharaoh's question indicates that Abram was the one. Abram told his wife, say that you're my sister, but 
And she may have done that. We don't know. But what we do know from what Sarah says or from what Pharaoh says is that Abram told the lie and said that she was his sister. Again, implied in Pharaoh's language is that he would not have taken Sarah into his house if he had known that she was the wife of Abram. Observe what happens next. And this brings us to the last development in this story of how God saves Abram and Sarah's marriage and brings them back to the land of promise. And that is Pharaoh returns Sarah to Abram and escorts them back to Canaan. He says to Abram in verse 19, Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Pharaoh brings Sarah out and speaks very abruptly to Abram. And his words should have made Abram feel ashamed of his deception and selfishness. Literally, the Hebrew is very abrupt. Pharaoh brings Sarah out and says, Behold, your wife, take and go. Notice that Pharaoh is saying about Sarah what Abram was afraid to say. Behold, your wife, he says, take your wife, which is what you're supposed to do as her husband and go get out of here. Pharaoh says Pharaoh obviously has no desire to spend any time with Abram. He wants Abram gone and out of his life. Imagine if Abram at this point said to Pharaoh, hey, Pharaoh, can I can I take this opportunity to share with you about Jehovah God? He made promises to me and said through me he would bless all the peoples of the earth. uh, And I'd like to unpack that for you if I could and tell you about my God. How do you think that would have gone? Pharaoh would not have listened. He wants Abram gone. As one writer says, what a tremendous opportunity for personal witness to the living God that Abram has lost because he had compromised the truth. This is why the text says in verse 20, Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him and they escorted him away with his wife and all that belonged to him. Pharaoh is taking this step of providing a military escort for two reasons. Number one, to make sure that Abram gets out of the country. And number two, to make sure that Abram is protected and that nothing happens to him or to anything that belongs to him, including Sarah. Pharaoh is angry with Abram, but he also recognizes that there is a powerful deity who is looking after Abram and Pharaoh is very concerned that nothing else happened that would further anger the God of Abram. And this way you actually see with hindsight that God plaguing Pharaoh's house was actually a mercy to Abram. It guaranteed that he would be protected and not messed with or killed by Pharaoh after the deception was discovered. Pharaoh does not want to mess with Abram. He wants him gone and actually provides a military escort to get him out of the country and give him protection as he goes. When you read the first verses of the next chapter, you observe that Abram and Sarah were escorted back to the land of promise, which brings us full circle to where the story began. Um, 
There's a lot to learn here just as we wrap things up this morning. Let's just ponder uh, a few things. Um, Some of us husbands might read this story and say, man, I would never do what Abram does in this passage. But actually, we men are guilty of what Abram does in our story today every time we think of our own individual good rather than our wife's good. Every time we think as an I rather than as a we. Every time we treat our wife as less than the wife that she is. We are guilty of what Abram does every time we forget the promises of God and act according to our own wisdom. We are just like Abram. Every time we behave in a way that leaves our wife in a vulnerable position. There may be some men in this room that when you travel, you take your wedding ring off. In that moment, and you don't, you don't really want people to know that you're married. You're doing worse than Abram. Abram said that she was his sister. You're saying she's non-existent. So we as husbands do well to just ask, are there ways that I do what Abram does on various levels? That leads to another lesson for us as husbands to ponder. And this can go both ways also. And that is don't let your wife be your Jehovah. On one level, guys, it looks like Abram is not placing a lot of value on his wife. But honestly, a fair read of this story shows that he's actually placing too much value on Sarah. And he's leaning on her too much. Notice that he tells her that she has to lie so that it may go well with me because of you and that I may live on account of you, he says. You see what he's doing? Abram should have been thinking it will go well with me because of Jehovah and I will live on account of Jehovah. But Jehovah's name is removed from those sentences and Sarah is put in Jehovah's place. Jehovah was the one who had promised Abram that he would bless him and make of him a great nation. But Abram's eyes are not on Jehovah. Instead, in this moment, Abram is looking to Sarah to be his savior rather than looking to Jehovah God. He's saying to Sarah, I need you to do such and such in order for things to go well for me. I need you to lie in order that I will live. Abram is forgetting Jehovah and putting the burden of deity on his wife. And that's a pressure that should never be put on any wife or any husband. Abram's greatest sin in this story was not that he lied. His greatest sin was not that he demoted Sarah to the status of sister. His greatest sin was that he elevated her to the status of savior. And in the process, he almost lost his wife. Men, uh, if you take nothing away from this morning, take this away. If you're married, let your wife be your wife and let Jehovah be your God. Given opportunity, I think your wife can make a pretty good wife, but she will be a terrible Jehovah. The greatest gift that we as husbands can give to our wives is to let God be God and let our wives just be our wives. And our wives will love us for that.
Another thing we observe in this story is that God is the gracious savior of marriages. We see in our passage today that the real hero of this story is God. Abram tried to be the hero with his risky strategy of deception. And I'm sure had it worked out, I can just hear him gloating as they left Egypt. How proud he would have been of his own devices if his strategy had worked, but he got more than he bargained for and he ended up almost losing Sarah in the process. But God came through and saved the day and God showed himself the true and faithful hero of their marriage. This isn't the last time either. There'll be more instances of God saving their marriage. Abram will be guilty of this exact same deception in Genesis 20. And God will have to rescue their marriage again. In Genesis 16, Sarah uh, will bring Hagar to Abram and tell Abram to have sexual relations with her so that they can have a child through her bringing huge problems into their marriage. But God again intervenes and rescues their marriage. What's clear is that God loves Abram and Sarah's marriage more than they do. It's God's plan to fulfill his promises through Abram, but essential to the fulfillment of God's promises is Abram and Sarah's marriage being whole. God will settle for nothing less in his plan to use Abram to be a blessing to the nations. God will not bless the nations through Abram at the expense of his marriage to Sarah, but he wants to do that through his marriage to Sarah. And the same is true for all of us who are married. God loves our marriages. Jesus died for our marriages. And Christ wants us as a people to be a blessing to the world, to others in our lives, not in spite of our marriages, not at the expense of our marriages, but through our marriages. There's another huge takeaway for us this morning that I'll mention briefly, and that is that God is faithful when we are not. I love God as he's demonstrated here. The purpose of the story is not to just tell us about how Abram lied and fell short of complete and perfect faith in God. This story is designed to show God's faithfulness to keep his promises to Abram. Even when Abram is blowing it and not trusting God as he should. At this point of the narrative, coming to the end of chapter 12, we now know that the promises God made to Abram are unalterable. And even Abram's sin cannot undo these promises. And God does the same for us again and again. Even when we are almost faithless at times, even when we make bonehead decisions, God remains faithful to expose us in our sin and to rescue us and to pull us back to the place where he wants us to be and to teach us some valuable lessons and to grow us in the process. Abram one day is going to be a man of crazy faith. And it's a faithful, gracious God, loving him, rescuing him, teaching him who will make Abram that man of great faith. God is gracious and faithful like that. In the end, the hero of Abram's life story, the hero of our life story as Christians, the hero of our sanctification is God. It's not us. And lastly, um, 
I think we have to appreciate Jesus here. We cannot read this story without appreciating Christ, who is the husband of the church. Abram was afraid to be killed on account of his wife. Abram was afraid that his marriage to Sarah would cause him to get killed. And he did everything he could to avoid that fate. But Jesus, our Savior, the lover of the church, the lover of our souls, was not afraid to be killed for the sake of his bride, the church. And the truth is, we, the church, prior to Christ dying for us and saving us, we weren't even beautiful like Sarah was. There was no beauty in us that would cause anyone to even want us. But Jesus looked upon us and our uncleanness and in our filth and our ugliness and our sin. And he said to his father, Father, can I have her for my wife? And the father says, yes, you can, but you'll need to get crucified. You will need to die and shed your blood in order to obtain her. And Jesus said, I'll do that. I'll do that. What a savior we have. In all honesty, I fell in love with Donna years ago because she was beautiful. Jesus loved us when we were not beautiful and he laid down his life for the salvation of sinners like you and me. And he says to us, greater love has no one than this. Greater love has no one than this. It is his love that takes hold of us as we believe in him and that begins day by day to transform us and to make us beautiful men and women, a beautiful church that displays the image and the glory of Jesus Christ. And if you have never believed in Jesus Christ and called on his name for salvation, I think Valentine's Day 2016 is the perfect day for you to do that. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that if there are any in this room this morning that have never surrendered to your love, that they would do that today. No matter what sins they have committed, no matter how their conscience may afflict them, that they would know that they could come to you and hear you as you say, anyone who comes to me, I will never cast him out. It is your grace that teaches our hearts to fear and shows us our sin. And it's your grace that relieves those fears and, and gives us atonement for those sins that we feel conviction over as a result of the working of your spirit. And I pray that, that you would draw souls to yourself today, that even where they're seated, they would cry out to you and know that in you they have a Savior who stands ready to save. I pray for us as your people that you would just help us to be a godly people, a truth-speaking people, people who value the institution of marriage and who, who value our spouses, 
who value other marriages. We respect other marriages for the sacred things that they are. And above all, Lord, we just thank you that in this journey that we are all on of sanctification, that you, we will look back at the end of it all and see a whole lot of mess, but there will be a steady line of faithfulness through all of that mess. And that is you, Lord, who are always there to rescue and to save and to love and to give grace and to sustain and to bring us back to the right path. You are a gracious God, and we just cherish your grace this morning. May the awareness of your grace melt our eyes to tears, melt our hearts into deeper levels of loving obedience to you, and may this grace serve as the wind beneath our wings, enabling us to soar to heights of faithfulness in a way that gives glory to you. We thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to give of our offerings to you. We ask that you would receive these funds and do much with every penny that is given for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.